invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We are continuing our study in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, uh, this passage is found on page 814, Ephesians chapter 2. As a young man, John pursued the pleasures of this world. His language was so profane that even wicked men and women were shocked. He attended church, but not because his heart was in it. As a teenager, he ended up serving in the military, and while serving in an area of conflict, one of the other soldiers asked to take his place standing guard. The man that took his place was shot in the head while on that guard duty. And John realized that God had spared his life. John tried to change his life, but his conscience continued to trouble him, and he struggled to find peace with God. He believed that he had sinned so greatly that he was beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. He tried to change his life. He, He read the Bible, but he still had no peace. And one day the thought came to his mind, will you leave your sin and go to heaven or will you have your sins and go to hell? It was not until he was studying the book of Galatians that he realized he could be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And it was then that he overcame that inner turmoil and struggle and found peace in Christ alone. John Bunyan went on to become a preacher. He ended up imprisoned because he would not promise not to preach publicly. And while he spent 12 years in jail, he wrote a number of works, including one of the most famous, Pilgrim's Progress. For many years, Pilgrim's Progress was the second best-selling book behind the Bible. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress as an analogy on the book of Ephesians. This morning I want us to consider the peace that John found that Christ is our peace as it is laid out in the second part of the second chapter of Ephesians. If you've been with us, the first part of Ephesians talks about redemption. The second half of the chapter, of this second chapter, talks about reconciliation. The first half of the chapter talks about the victory that there is in Christ over death. Now we'll see the victory there is over division. And there are really two ways that God is glorified in our salvation. The first is that he takes individual sinners and saves them and makes them his children. The second way is he takes people who are hostile to one another transforms them and unites them in a new humanity, one body, the church. One man referred to the first 10 verses of chapter 2 as the acquisitions and second, the second half as mergers. I liked his perspective partic- particularly because it was a black Muslim who had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He understood the the barriers both racially and religiously that were broken down by the death of Christ, that Jesus Christ is our peace. Follow with me as I begin reading in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. 
Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as he created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he, became, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us of the reconciliation that we have both with you and with other believers. Lord, we pray that you would protect the unity of our local church that we would show forth your glory, that, that if there is strife in our hearts, that we would deal with that in a way that brings honor and glory to you. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. The second half of this chapter expands on the work of, of Christ's redemption and reconciliation, and it really is highlighting the terrible plight that the Gentiles, the majority of us, had and the majority of the church at Ephesus. If you remember, the first couple of verses of chapter 2 tell about the desperate condition of those without Christ. That they were dead, defiant, defiled, depraved, disobedient, and doomed. Children of wrath, just like everybody else. That's a really bad situation. But for Gentiles, it gets worse. And that's what's being brought out now in this Part. The Gentiles have additional problems. And if you can tolerate three more Ds, I apologize. It just helps me remember. Gentiles were distant, disadvantaged, and divided. And we're going to see that in these verses. That, that par this paragraph, which really is verses 11 through 22, we've only read part of it. One commentator said this is, provides one of the most wonderful descriptions of peace and reconciliation in Paul's letters. We see both the vertical and the horizontal aspects of being reconciled to God and to others. And both of these are part of God's plan of salvation. And what I want us to consider this morning is that although we were far from God, he brings us near through the death of Jesus Christ, providing peace for us and placing us into a family relationship with other believers who have also been reconciled to God. Peace with God and peace with his children as a family. The first thing, that, though, that we need to understand is our estrangement, the, the distance that there was. This section, this paragraph, begins with the only imperative in the first three chapters of Ephesians, therefore, remember. 
And the, the call for us to remember is not just to file it away, to check a box, but to, to evaluate what has taken place and then act accordingly. Because as we read in our scripture reading, that you have not so learned Christ. Remember where we've come from and what we have learned from that. Understand that God established a separation between the Jews and Gentiles. When he called Abraham, God established a separation. And since that moment, there has been a barrier. There was a difference. If you think back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what you really find is the testimony of, of humanity moving away from God. The creation in the garden, the disobedience that comes in chapter 3, the first murder that takes place in chapter 4, and then what you have as a lineage, and as you come to chapter 6, you, you find the humans as they multiplied on the earth, the wickedness also multiplies. And God ends up destroying all living things except for Noah and those that were with him in the ark, and that's Genesis 7. And then you find after that the, the heritage, the lineage of, of Noah. And in chapter 10 of Genesis, you have a list of, of families, of generations, of, of nations that all are from Noah's offspring. And then in chapter 11, those nations attempt to unite, to exalt themselves against God, and God scatters them all over the earth by dividing their languages. It's a lineage of the a testimony of the lineage of the Gentile nations. And when you come to chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And at that point, God promises he will make of him a great nation, bless all the families on the earth, and you find a division that takes place there between all the other nations and Abraham and his descendants, this new people group. So ethnicity, nationality, people groups all trace back to a common ancestor. That Abraham is the father of the Jews, but he himself was of, the, of another line and, and of the line of Shem, and yet he's separated, and that separation is by God. God calls him out of his country, out of his father's house. And, I, and I'm, I'm emphasizing this because the separation was not due to skin color or language or even geography, but it was God's special covenant promises given to Abraham. And God's purpose for calling out the Jews was not so that they would boast but that they would be humbled by his mercy and grace and then be a testimony to all the other nations of what God will do to those who will turn to him and follow him. Unfortunately, that wasn't what happened. But the gap is not one that can be bridged by human ingenuity because the separation came from God. But the attitude of the Jews was not one of humility. They actually developed a pejorative attitude toward others, and that's what we see in verse 11. And, and their, their response was not of humble adoration, but prideful presumption. You know, God likes us best. He chose us. And, and they, it became the club that they used. They looked down on those who were not God's chosen people. Instead of reflecting God's grace and inviting others to enjoy that, they assumed an arrogant stature. And when you treat other people with that kind of arrogance, how do they normally respond? 
especially when they don't know God. So we understand the major division that came between Jews and Gentiles. The, the same attitude is coming back at them of hostility. The covenantal sign that God gave to Abraham was that of circumcision. God gave it to him when he was 90 years old. We read this in Genesis chapter 17. And it was for all the male offspring. So it required personal participation by every Jewish boy. And the nature of the sign was to remind them that God required purity in his people. It would highlight the purity of marriage. It would be a reminder against sexual sin and the importance of raising a godly offspring. All of that was part of the, the sign. But the covenantal sign became a verbal club. And this is a reminder that God's promise has become a prideful mark. So when we read this, those who are called the uncircumcision, that is not how the, the Gentiles, that was not how the Romans or the Greeks referred to themselves. That was how the Jews referred to them. It was, it was a statement not of appreciation, but derogatory. They, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as inferior. In fact, a Jewish man would pray, I thank God that I am not a woman or a Gentile. In fact, a Jew was prohibited from helping a Gentile woman give birth because it would bring another Gentile into the world. That was the hostility. And if you read in the Old Testament, in, in 1 Samuel 17, when David learns of Goliath's blasphemy, he makes this statement. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so the description here in verse 11 clearly is from the Jewish standpoint. The, the physical sign that was supposed to be symbolic of what was taking place in the heart had simply become a club for them. Deuteronomy 10, 16 commanded that the circumcision of the heart instead of being stubborn or rebellious. In Colossians 2, verse 11, it says, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So that phrase at the end, made in the flesh by hands, is actually a statement that's going to remind the Jews that they too are separated from God. That this wasn't just a Gentile problem. But it was also a problem for Jews, but it was a greater problem for Gentiles. And we see that in verse 12. Because the Gentiles are separated by a persistent list of deficiencies. Notice what is, is stated in verse 12. The first one was, they were without Christ. Israel looked for the coming of the Messiah. Israel had the promise of the Christ, the Messiah, and, and they anticipated that. The Gentiles didn't have that hope. In fact, if you remember in John chapter 4, when Jesus comes to the, the well in Samaria, and he's talking to the woman there, that, that this is a woman who was seeking some kind of satisfaction, some kind of answers for life in physical relationships. And she had failed to find peace. She had been married five times. She was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And, and when Jesus put his finger on her, her sin, on her immoral relationship, she decides to change the subject and says, let's talk about worship. And she says, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. 
And you Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem. Notice the ethnicity that is highlighted in their ancestry. Our fathers, your fathers. So this is where the division comes. And Jesus responds in verse 22 and says, You worship what you do not know, for salvation is of the Jews. The Gentiles didn't have that hope. They didn't have the promise. And, and so when Paul is writing to the church at Rome and laying out that everybody is lost, everybody is a sinner, he, he deals with the question in chapter 3, well, so is there advan any advantage given to the Jews? And it says, what advantage then is for the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Verse 2, but in every way, chiefly because of them were committed the oracles of God. He said, yes, there's a tremendous advantage for Jews. And the main one is they got the word of God. The scripture, the prophets, the holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. They got the word. That was a huge blessing. And he says, yes, there was a blessing to them. Chapter 9 emphasizes the privilege that the Jews had the Messiah would come from a Jewish lineage. So at best, Gentiles... Those of us that are non-Jews were on the outside looking in without hope of the promised Messiah, without Christ. But it gets worse, without citizenship. It says they were aliens. The Gentiles didn't have the right of citizenship in the theocratic state that God had established with Israel. You know, if you travel to another country, one of the things that you have to make sure is that your papers are in order that your passport is up to date, that it's not going to expire. There are certain countries that won't let you in if it's within six months of the expiration. And, and there's something about having that passport. And when I travel and I've been in other countries, I, there's a level of confidence that I have an American passport. But I also know that in other countries, that doesn't mean that they're going to let me in. I remember being in an airport uh, in another country. I was just passing through, but they were checking papers. And, and they were being very kind to me. It was a country that was very gracious to the United States. But there was somebody else there that was from another country, and they weren't being nice to them at all. And it was even before they got to the counter. They just knew that there wasn't that closeness. As, as Gentiles, we were aliens. That, that they're, we didn't have the passport. Gentiles had no passport in God's nation, therefore they had no rights as, as citizens. And then they were also without family. Not only aliens, but strangers is the next thing that is stated in this verse. Strangers of the covenant promises. The Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, the, co the covenant given to Abraham and to David, promised and assured Israel of their national existence. They were promised a land, they were promised a king, they were promised spiritual blessings. And so Israel is looking for their Messiah, the deliverer, who would conquer the other nations, the oppressors and reign over the whole earth, that, that their family would have the king. Well, who were their oppressors? The Gentiles. If you read their history, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Medes, the Persians, and now it's the Romans in the first century. And, and, and so because of that, because of this family promise, the Jews had never surrendered in spirit. In fact, in John chapter 8, 
The, the Jews who are debating with Jesus says, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Now, I read that and say, really? I mean, who's ruling you at that time? Who do you pay taxes to? Rome is ruling, but their spirit had never surrendered. So when they said, we have never been in bondage, their spirit had never been broken. And it was because they had the hope of the covenant promises of their family reigning through the Messiah. To have a land, a nation, a king, the Gentiles didn't have that right. Gentiles were strangers. And therefore, they were without hope. And that's the fourth thing that we see, having no hope. They didn't have a certain future. There really was nothing to look forward to. Oh, they might have good ideas. They might hope this happened. They might, you know, wish it happened. But there wasn't the settled confidence that this is God's promise. And folks, without hope, what reason is there for living? I mean, isn't that humanity today? There's really no anticipation for the future. Oh, there might be dreams, there might be wishes, but there's not that settled confidence that, that I have hope this will happen. I mean, because our culture says we're here by accident. You know, it's a result of this big bang. There was an explosion in the galaxy and, and then over billions of years, things cooled off and there was this primal ooze and amoebas got together and crawled out of that warm swamp and, and dropped their tails and developed legs and here we are. And you can teach that in a university. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of the corruptible man and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And as I've said before, they, they went from theism to humanism and pantheism. But do you understand why there's no hope? If we're here because there was some kind of an explosion, it was an accident, and it was accidental that these cells got together, then our life is an accident. There is no hope. And that was the thinking that's the thinking of today, and because there's no hope, there's no reason for living, you realize the suicide rate in the first century was very high because there was no hope. And the suicide rate in the 21st century is high because when you teach people that they're here by accident, then why not look for an out when life gets hard? Because they're without hope, and they're without hope because of the fifth thing, they're without God. And we see that the word that is used here, the Greek word, atheos, it's the only time it's used in the, the New Testament. Ah, without, theos, God, we get our word atheist from this. And the removal of hope. They were godless. And it's interesting because Ephesus was a very religious city. And they had the temple for, for the worship of Diana, but they had a lot of other gods as well. But those who exchanged the true God for false gods and false philosophies are without God and therefore without hope. And while the pagan temples may provide some momentary pleasures for the flesh, they couldn't satisfy the longing of the soul. And it's important to understand the alienation that had taken place, the estrangement that was there for the Gentiles, so that the second thing that we see is that you need to appreciate your reconciliation. 
And we see that in the the second half of this section that we're considering this morning, verses 13 through 18. The, The word reconcile, which we find in verse 16, means to bring together, to bring together again. You know, it's, it's the word of a, of a distraught mother who is seeking to be reconciled to a wayward daughter. A humbled husband who is seeking to be reconciled to an offended wife. It's that lost sinner who's seeking to be reconciled to God because sin is the great separator. And so we see the work of Christ as a work of reconciliation. The, the first aspect, though, of the reconciliation is between the Jews and Gentiles as they are reconciled. I mean, they were distant religiously, but also racially. And so it says, you who were far off. The Gentiles were physically separated. And, and, and everything about Jewish worship would, would indicate that. If you had gone to Jerusalem at this time in history and gone to the temple, the, inside the temple itself, in the very center was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter there and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when the priest went in, they tied a rope to his foot around his ankle in case he wasn't holy when he went in and got killed so they could drag him out. I mean, do you think that would bring a level of anxiety? I mean, how would you like to be in the priestly line and have a priest come and say, you know, we've got some good news and bad news. The good news is you get to be the new high priest. The bad news is we had to drag the last one out. You know, I'm not sure. Can can I get back in line? It was a very serious aspect, the holiness of God. Outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place. And only the priest could enter there and he would go in and offer the incense and the priest would only do it once in his lifetime. They would rotate different priests each time. Then outside of that was the court of the priest where the priest could go as long as they were wearing their priestly garments. Outside the court of the priest was the court of Israel or the men's court where other Jews could go. Outside of that court was the court of women, where the Jewish women could go. And there was a wall surrounding all of this. The temple, the court of the priests, the court of, the, of Israel, the court of the women. And outside that wall was the court of the Gentiles. So even if they wanted to worship the God of Israel, they had to stay outside that wall. They could only get so close. And between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Israelites, there was an inscription that was written, and it was written in Greek and Latin, and it said this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And that was not an idle threat. You may recall in Acts chapter 21 that after Paul returns to Jerusalem, after working with the Gentiles, one of his mission trips, he's recounting how God is working among the Gentiles and the believing Jews rejoice. They're delighted. But the unbelieving Jews falsely accuse Paul of bringing a Greek Gentile named Trophimus into the temple area and thus corrupting, defiling the holy place. And so they grab Paul, they drag him out, they start beating him, and they're going to beat him to death 
and the Roman commander intervenes and saves Paul's life. And what's interesting is it says in Acts 21, verse 29, that Trophimus was from Ephesus. The people who were far off. And understanding, not only was there a structural barrier, there was a relational barrier. And so Christ broke down that middle wall, that wall of separation. He abolished the enmity. That's what we read in verses 14 and 15. Do you realize how, how revolutionary this reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles was? The Jews who would follow the Mosaic law and Gentiles who had been saved out of worshiping a pagan goddess, Diana, and the immorality that went along with that. I mean, can you imagine them just going out to eat together or spending a day together? Some of the challenges... You know, for a Jew, practically every moment of their life was governed by the law of Moses. 635 regulations in the Mosaic law. It, it talked about what they wore, what they did, how they did business, what they ate, how they planted their crops. It covered marriage and family issues. It covered their behavior. And that doesn't even get to their worship. The places of the sacrifice, the kind of sacrifices, the times of the sacrifices, the types of offerings, the amounts of offerings, all of this is being regulated by the law. And for a conscientious Jew who's concerned about keeping this, it's going to be on their mind constantly, and Jews aren't even going to give it a second thought. So if you've got a Gentile, say, hey, you know, his Jewish brother, let's go spend the day together. Let's go to the mall. And he picks a suit off the rack of, of, of mixed cloth, a wool blend garment. And a Jew, no, I can't do that. Well, let's go eat. Let's, you know, they've got a great ham sandwich over at Chompy's. It's like, yeah, I can't do that. Well, the bacon and eggs, they serve breakfast. <laughs> no, I can't do the bacon. Okay, how about a lobster dinner? No, I can't do that either. I mean, all of these things that I love <laughs> were prohibited. Those were unclean foods. And, and to, to realize that a, a Gentile didn't have to worry about touching something that would make him ceremonially unclean. But a Jew did. Every moment of his day is going to be brought. And, and to understand, and Peter struggled with this. When the Lord prepares him to take the gospel to Cornelius, a, a Gentile, in Acts chapter 10, Peter's, you know, he's staying at the house of a tanner who's dealing with dead things. And, and dealing with skins and yet when this comes down this vision and, and the Lord says Peter arise and eat and he said no I'm not going to touch anything unclean and the Lord says what, what I've cleansed don't you call unclean and the doing away with that but do you understand the challenge for a conscientious Jew so, so how did Christ bring this peace it says in verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments that it says in Romans 10:4, Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled the law. He abolished that. That barrier comes down. He tore the veil in the temple. When he died, the veil was torn. And, and symbolically, he's breaking down the, the middle wall of separation between the court of the Gentiles and those of believers, believing Jews. And, and I'm stressing this because it's important that we understand that, that Christ didn't Judaize the Gentiles or Christianize the Jews. Instead, it says, he made one new man from two, thus making peace. 
He made a new creation. He established a, a new creation. And the idea of new here isn't merely new in time. It's talking new character. It's that change of life, the, the transformation that comes when Christ dwells within us, the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it's, it's not so much the time as the quality. And it's only the Spirit of God that can bring that kind of a transformation. In one of the commentaries, I, I came across a, an illustration that years ago there was a school bus driver in Australia. His name was John Reed. And, and John's bus carried aborigine children and then white children. And they were constantly fighting. There, there was a constant battle taking place. And, and finally, John just got fed up with it. And one day he pulled the bus, bus over and he said to one of the white boys, he said, what color are you? And the boy said, white. He said, no, you're green. Everybody who rides my bus is green. So what color are you? Green. Good. And he turned to one of the aborigine boys and said, what color are you? He said, black. No, you're green. Everybody who rides my bus is green. You're green. Now, what color are you? Green. And he thought he had solved it. And things went pretty well for several miles until he heard a voice from the back of the bus. And one of the kids said, okay, all the light green on this side and the dark green on that side. <laughs> now, now, John had the right idea, but all he could do was change labels. He couldn't change hearts. Jesus Christ changes and creates a new race. And understanding that Christ made a new humanity. We see that back in verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Folks, this is the answer to racism, to prejudice, to hostility, the ethnic cleansing we see in our culture, that God has placed us in one community as believers as a family and for the purpose of praising his name. It's amazing because Christ doesn't take enemies and make them friends. He takes enemies and makes them family. Those who were far off and those who were near are brought together. Jews and Gentiles. And that was a significant barrier. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the joys I have in visiting mission fields over the years is meeting people from different backgrounds, different languages, different skin colors, different cultures, and yet to realize we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And there, for those of you that have been on other fields, there's a way that your heart is knit that really is beyond the ability to explain. You know, when I was in Kenya just a, a few months ago and just developing a friendship with the dear believers there, and, and, and some of them I'm connected with on Facebook. And it's just a delight to see. I have, I have friends from years ago in, in, in Zambia. And I, I, I taught those from Asia and a restri from restricted access nations. I taught pastors years ago. I, I, I'd have to have a translator for us to talk. But there was a unity that we had. And it's the unity of the Spirit that, John, or that Ephesians 4 speaks of that the Spirit brings because we're family. We have the same parentage. We have the same father. The Jews had their father Abraham. The Gentiles have a lot of other fathers that are traced through the history. But as believers, we have one father. And we're brought near by one spirit. That's what verse 18 tells us. And that's one of the joys I see of Tri-City Baptist Church, the multi-ethnic ministry, as we come together to glorify God as our heavenly father.
as brothers and sisters in Christ and to know the joy of that and, and then to, to guard the unity, to strive to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit and the bonds of peace as, as Ephesians 4, 3 exhorts us to do. But it wasn't just the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. It was Jews and Gentiles being reconciled to God. And that's what we see in verses 16 through 18. This is a rich term that, that carries that idea of turning from hostility to friendship. Folks, remember, friendship with the world is hostility, it's enmity with God. There's conflict, but God brings us near. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What an amazing statement that God demonstrated his love while we were still enemies, that God loved us that he reached us. What was the cost of destroying that enmity? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important that we recognize Christ's achievement. And that's my third point, though it really comes back through this passage and, and, and seeing it at several statements, that you need to recognize Christ's achievement, that Christ made both one when he broke down that middle wall. He abolished the enmity that, that's the negative side. He's, he's abolished the enmity, but the positive side speaks of the peace that we have in Jesus Christ. The peace is mentioned four times in these verses, in verses 14 through 17. It's once in verse 14, once in verse 15, and in the Greek text, it's mentioned twice in verse 17. And so understanding what Christ has done, the first thing that we see is Christ himself is our peace. That's verse 14. It says Christ is not only the high priest, Christ is a sacrifice. He's the lamb without blemish and without spot. He's the one that killed the hostility. One commentator put it this way, the cross that slew Jesus slew also the hostility between man and God. His death was the death of animosity. He's the prince of peace. That we have peace with one another and peace in our souls because he himself is our peace. The second thing that we see is Christ created our peace. That's verses six, 15 and 16. It's not a change of our temperament to one of toleration for other people. We're a new creation. We, we have been raised to walk in a new way of living. And if you struggle with hostility, with prejudice, with bigotry, you don't understand what Christ did. Or maybe you haven't un experienced his transforming peace that brings those of us that were far off near. And it's not because of anything we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That our unity is built on Jesus Christ. You know, there are a lot of people that try to get unity other ways. And you can get a superficial peace. But if we're going to have unity in the church, it has to be based on Christ. Shallow theology is not going to do it. Subcultures 
unity around programs or music or activities or this or that is not what's going to bring the true peace. It's Jesus Christ. We have to be Christ-centered as a ministry because Christ creates the peace. And then the third thing that it tells us in this passage is Christ preached peace. That's verses 17 and 18. He is the one preaching peace. I would invite you to turn, turn with me back to the Gospel of John. I, I'll, I'll put a couple of the verses up, but I, I'd like you to see it in the Scripture. In, in John chapter 9, and, I, and I'm going to chapter 9 because this gives us the context of what's going to come, of what I want us to see just briefly in chapter 10. But in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man that was blind from his birth. That's what verse 1 tells us. He's now an adult. And, and Jesus heals this blind man on the Sabbath day. And, and that creates a real conflict with the Pharisees. Because they say, well, this can't be the Messiah because he did work on the Sabbath. Well, how much work is it to tell him that you can see? But the, the hostility continues to increase. And so then they go to his parents. Well, his parents are afraid of the, the Jewish leaders. And they said, look, he's an adult. Ask him. And, and I don't know what this man was like when he was blind, but it does seem that when his eyes were opened, his mouth was too. <laughs> and and I, I enjoy reading this, and I'm not going to take time to do it, but, but the Pharisees are refusing to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they're questioning him. And, and he says, look, all I know in verse 25 is, I was blind, now I see. And they keep pressing him. Well, you have to say this man was a sinner because he wouldn't do this on the Sabbath day and all. And, and he sa so they say, tell us. And he says in verse 27, I already told you. You didn't listen. Do you want me to hear it again? Because are you going to follow him? Are you going to become his disciples? I mean, he's got a little bit of an edge. But frankly, I don't blame him. First time he's seen in over 30 years, and he's being hassled because of it. And finally, the Pharisees throw him out. They probably excommunicate him, and it's possible that they are removing him from the covenant community of Israel. And then Jesus comes and finds him. And he puts his trust in Christ as the Messiah. He's already been defending Christ. And now he trusts him as the, the Messiah. Now, that's the background for the conflict that comes in chapter 10 when Jesus is now talking to the, the Pharisees. And Jesus portrays himself as the good shepherd. It says in verse 11, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep in, in John 10. But I want to draw your attention to verse 14. John 10, verse 14. It says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I have known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I, am, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd." Now, notice what's taking place here. He's talking to the Pharisees who have rejected him. The fold is Israel, but not all of those in the fold are his sheep. He has sheep in the fold, but then it says that there are other sheep which I have that are not of this fold. Who are those? Gentiles. And Jesus is preaching this. So those that, and he says, my sheep hear my voice and I will call them out of the fold, the Jews, and those that aren't in the fold, the Gentiles, and they will be one flock. 
and one shepherd. Who is that flock? The church. That's what we're seeing in Ephesians. Those who are afar off, the Gentiles, and those who were near, the Jews, are put together in one flock. Or the terminology we find in Ephesians is one body. And the unity, they both have equal access, it says in verse 18, by one spirit to the Father. And I'm back in, in Ephesians 2 now. In verse 18, that access. So how does this apply to us? How do we put this into practice? Number one, is your life characterized by being at peace because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know the joy, the comfort, even the midst of trials? Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. Every joy or trial comes from above and is shaped by Him. Do others see us walk, the, you walking worthy of the Lord with patience and long-suffering and joy? That's what Colossians 1 speaks of. Do you find the unity with others? You know, we're not going to find unity in this sinful world. It's falling apart. There are superficial peace, a peace that can be gathered if there's similar interests or pleasures or even enemies. But there's always going to be a wall. You know, it's, it's said that fences good, make good neighbors, but they don't make good families. In Christ, there's a unity because of righteousness. Peace with God and peace with each other and peace in ourselves because of Jesus Christ. It's a package deal. And when your life is marked by unresolved conflict and broken relationships, you're not going to have much success in sharing the gospel. Because Christ killed the hostility, so we shouldn't live in it. Secondly, do your relationships with other believers display the Holy Spirit's uniting in the bond of peace? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You know, conflict can remind you of your weakness, stubborn pride, bitter, unforgiving spirit, or even a critical tongue can reveal sinful attitudes that God is teaching us otherwise. You've not so learned Christ. That needs to be confessed and forsaken. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says we're to walk in loneliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another. That, that actually means putting up with one another. In love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Are we doing that? Well, Christ paid the price with his blood to bring about this reconciliation. And if we understand what he paid for our peace, what are we willing to do to keep the peace? And then the third thing is, do you, have you been reconciled to God? Do you know the peace of being at right relationship with God? It says a little further on in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Do you know that peace? Are you in Christ reconciled to God? Are you one of his children and part of the flock? You know, although we were far from God, he brings us near through the death of Christ, providing peace and placing us in a family relationship 
with other believers that we can glorify him because we've been reconciled to him. Do you have that peace in your life this morning? Let's pray together.